0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi azikawe and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi azikawe and uh, today is Sunday, June 26, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we're here uh, broadcasting uh, our last... Uh, supplement on uh, Black Music Month, uh, which of course uh, has been commemorated uh, for the last uh, approximately uh, 45 years, uh, late 1970s. And uh, today uh, we're going to, of course, uh, bring you another action-filled program. This will be our final episode in honor of Black Music Month for 2022. Also, the Pan-African Newswire report uh, will consist of dispatches on the announcement by the Russian foreign ministry uh, noting that the United States must account for the mercenaries deployed in uh, the Eastern European country of Ukraine. Women in uh, the Republic of Sudan have held a mass demonstration demanding the creation of a democratic dispensation inside that Central African state. South African authorities are still investigating the deaths of More than 20 people in an East London tavern uh, that occurred uh, overnight, and survivors of attacks by armed groups in Mali and West Africa are now speaking out. In the second and third hours, we present the final installment uh, for Black Music Month uh, with a special tribute to Arthur Lee, uh, Johnny Eccles, and the legendary band Love from uh, Los Angeles. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, from the Southern African state of Zambia. Uh, We're going to listen to some Zambian rock music uh, with uh, the band Paul Ngozi. And uh, this is entitled 45,000 Votes. Let's listen in. (laughs) ¶¶
2: I'm aulemu. Now vokamba, kamba Vokamba, kamba, zileta Pamulo homo Shifu kwa vena vazibu kuyasha Tuko Ha! Yeah!
0: Sisa
2: jinta jira Chaya got to go, Potangozi.
0: I <laughs> got
2: <laughs> to get She does. aina o agatiya yangu neko kimemayamba kubachi tande o aa ah, ah, lekani gumenyana ndia mai ya ah, lekani gumenyana ndia mai yatu. we de Eduardo
0: ¡Mu plebe, mu cuchiquira! ¡Mu cachiche olepi! ¡Mu dindiqui! ¡Mu seca, ¡Ena! ¡Ana tu ¡Ena ya tu camendo!
2: La chichita, de antuas a una, tu dedi, muco, te quila.
0: Usted tiene un dedi, no tengo ni O que é que eu
2: Malo a little bit a problem. I'm a
0: little topana of I think i
2: wa la la ma ma nadappa shu nigari na yo na no chundi nigari
1: Uh, from uh, the Southern African state of Zambia. And, of course, uh, that album was entitled 45,000 Votes, uh, released uh, during uh, the 1970s. And, of course, uh, the uh, music uh, labeled as um, Bam rock, uh, of course, uh, Ngozi uh, was one of the uh, pioneers uh, in uh, that uh, genre. And, of course, um, there's a lot to be said uh, in terms of uh, the contributions of uh, African music uh, to uh, the overall uh, music uh, that became uh, known as rock music uh, in uh, Britain, in Europe, as well as in the uh, United States. So thank you so much for listening. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Sunday, June uh, 26, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, i like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. We're commemorating uh, Black Music Month. Uh, this is the final uh, episode of our Black Music Month uh, 2022 programming, and uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, the legends of Paula Gozi who we just heard, and coming up, of course, uh, Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles, uh, the pioneer uh, musicians uh, from Los Angeles uh, via Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, they uh, created the band Love in uh, 1965 and 1966. And of course, uh, we're going to be hearing some of their music as well as a rare archival interview uh, with Johnny Eccles discussing the history of uh, Arthur Lee uh, himself, the band Love, and many other uh, musicians and aggregations. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in the Pan-African Newswire for today. Western countries are reluctant to answer Russia's questions about their mercenaries in Ukraine. That's according to the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman, Mariah Zakharova. She said this uh, earlier today. Uh, she noted that as Russia, Colleen uh, said, uh, who is the ambassador to London, uh, they, uh, the Western countries, are writing some provocative, boorish things. If they don't want to answer the question we ask about their activity. She said in an interview with the Voskvinskny Vesher uh, the Sunday evening with Vladimir Zoloyov on the Rosia One television channel, when asked whether the United States and the United Kingdom have contacted Russia concerning their nationals who are taking part in the combat operations in Ukraine. According to uh, Zakharova, the West is doing its utmost to continue the conflict in Ukraine as long as possible. They are sparing no effort so that the conflict in Ukraine continues as long as possible. We remember what the U.S. Uh, 43rd President George Bush Jr. said, quote, Ukraine's mission is to kill as many as Russians as possible. They have endowed Ukraine and the Kiev regime uh, with this duty. They are using Ukraine um, as an instrument in the entire logistics are centered around that. Weapons supplies, sending people anything to keep the conflict burning, as U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson told of French President Emmanuel Macron earlier today, to prevent the settlement of this situation, otherwise their plans will fail, the Russian spokeswoman said. In news from the African continent, hundreds of Sudanese women dressed in white tuab, women's national dress in Sudan, yesterday uh, took to the streets of Abdurman City, uh, calling for an end to the excessive violence against protesters and the restoration of civilian rule. The Women's Rally was organized by the Pro-Democracy Conduct, the Nubian Queens group, uh, with the participation of over 20 women's organizations, including mothers of martyrs, gender groups, lawyers, doctors, as well as political parties. The demonstrators chanted uh, slogans hostile to the military coup, such as the revolution is the revolution of the people. The authority is for the people and the military have to go back uh, to the barracks. Also, they chanted slogans reminding women's roles in the December revolution. Oh, girls, stay steady. The revolution is a girls' revolution. <clears throat> Despite uh, several cases of sexual assaults and rape uh, by uh, the security forces on detained female protesters, Sudanese women continued to participate in the anti-coup demonstrations organized by the Neighborhood Committee in Khartoum State. A member of the Lawyers Without Borders group, Iqbal Ahmed Ali, told the Sudan Tribune that the white demonstration was organized in order to stop the bloody violence against the anti-coup protesters, especially after the increasing use of uh, the cartridge weapon. The demonstration <laughs> is a message to the security forces and the police to stop killing and to stop the killing of the Sudanese people, but also to advertise for the June 30th protest, she further noted. Activists and political parties launched since a week of a campaign calling to demonstrate on June 30th against the military coup of General Abdel Fattah Al-Bahan. Millions of Sudanese have taken to the streets, and uh, they're expecting million more, millions more on June 30th. Uh, of course, uh, this will mark the third anniversary uh, where uh, people uh, were crushed uh, outside uh, of the Sudanese uh, Ministry of Defense. The 2019 protests forced the Transitional Military Council to accept to hand over power to a civilian government and start negotiations. With the forces for freedom and change, however, that whole process was completely overthrown on October 25th of last year, 2021. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikwe, and uh, news uh, from uh, the... The Republic of South Africa indicates that as the Eastern Cape police are attempting to piece together what could have led to the deaths of at least 17 patrons, and some say as high as 20 or more, inside a popular township tavern in East London, officials say they fear the death toll may soon rise. Uh, police were alerted by members of the public to the incident at Scenery Park in the early hours of Sunday morning, where several bodies were found at Inyobini Tavern. It is still unclear what led to the multiple deaths, however, police say the de- deceased, who are believed to be teenagers, showed no obvious signs of injury. Eastern Cape Community Safety Spokesperson Unati Minkosi uh, says there are a possibility that the number of fatalities may be higher as the investigation continues. Earlier reports stated police were investigating the deaths of at least 22 people. Uh, ben Kosi says there they have no reports uh, so far as survivors from the incident because it's unclear how many people were in the nightclub uh, when the whole incident uh, took place. And uh, we're going to be following uh, this story over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. <clears throat> and uh, finally, in the West African state of Mali, Musa Tula fide. Uh, didn 't think twice when nearly one hundred jihadis on motorbikes gathered in his village in central Mali just last week. a peace agreement signed last year between some armed groups and the community in the Bankas area had largely held even if the gunmen would sometimes enter the town to preach Sharia to the villages. But on this Sunday in June, everything changed. The jihadis began just killing people They started was an old man about uh, 100 uh, years old. Then the sounds of weapons began to intensify around me, and then at one moment I heard a bullet whistling behind my ear. I felt the earth spinning. I lost consciousness and fell to the ground, Tola Fadi, a 28-year-old farmer, told the Associated Press by phone just on Friday in Mopti Town, uh, where he was receiving medical care. He said, when I woke up, Uh, It was dark around midnight. uh, There were were bodies of of other people on top of me. I smelled blood and smelled burnt things and heard the sounds of some people still moaning, he said. At least 132 people were killed in several villages in the Ban Kas area of central Mali uh, during uh, the two days of attacks uh, last weekend, according to the government which blames the group uh, to support Islam and the Muslims' jihadi rebels linked to al-Qaeda for the atrocities. The attack, uh, the deadliest since mutinous soldiers toppled President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita nearly two years ago, shows that Islamic extremist violence is spreading from Mali's north to the more central areas, analysts have said. The conflict-riddled country has been battling extremist violence for decades since jihadi seized control of key northern cities in 2012 and tried to take over the capital. They were pushed back by a French-led military operation the following year but have since regained ground. The Associated Press uh, spoke to several survivors uh, just two days ago who had sought treatment at a hospital in Mopti and were from the villages of uh, Jialasagou, Gianwele, and Disagou. People described hearing gunfire and jihadis shouting al Akbar" Arabic for God is great as they ran into the force to save their lives. Mali's government blamed the attacks on the group to support Islam and Muslims, or the JNIM, uh, which is backed by al-Qaeda, although the group denied responsibility in a statement two days ago. The United States and France condemned the attack, and the United Nations Peacekeeping Mission in Mali, uh, Minusma, issued a statement on Twitter saying the violence has caused casualties and displaced the population. And uh, you can read this story in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire, and that's going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners The Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, also, if you want to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, June 26, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, we're going to take a musical interlude. Uh, We'll be back uh, with our Black Music Month concluding programming. Let's listen in. was uh taken uh, from the first album of uh, the legendary uh, Los Angeles band, Love. Uh, that was called Emotions. Uh, the album entitled Love, their first album from 1966. And uh, Love was led by Arthur Lee and uh, Johnny Eccles, uh, two African-Americans uh, who led an uh, integrated uh, rock band, uh, in uh, the mid mid and late 1960s uh, when they began. Of course, Arthur Lee continued uh, for many decades afterwards to create music, and Johnny Eccles is continuing uh, to create music. And uh, we're going to listen uh, to an extensive interview uh, with Johnny Eccles discussing the history of the band Love, uh, the development uh, of uh, what became known as rock or progressive rock music, uh, of the mid and late uh, 1960s, early 1970s, and of course uh, um, uh, a hand view of the myth, the man, the legend, Arthur Lee. Uh, let's listen in to this historic uh, interview uh, with Johnny Eccles.
0: Yeah, said it's all I won't forget. The times I've waited patiently for you. And you'll
3: do just what you choose to do. And I will be alone again tonight by you. Hi, and welcome to Gonzaloa. This is a podcast about music, movies, comedy and all forms of excessive consumption. My name is Brian Bentley, and I want to thank you guys for joining us today. The song you just heard was Alone Again Or. We're going to be talking about the band that wrote that song, and especially the 1960s and the L.A. rock music scene. It was kind of like a giant door that opened to a new world of musical and sensory experience. Like every night, if you were lucky enough to be on the strip, your mind would be blown by the quality of new music. Invariably, in any rock documentary, the three L.A. names you're going to hear are the Birds, the Buffalo Springfield, and the Doors. But at the same time, the Birds were taking flight, and before, really, the Springfield and the Doors, there was an L.A. band that commanded the stage, and they had the ultimate party scene at clubs like beat and the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. The band was called Love, and their name said it all, a universal, all-encompassing appeal that touched on so many different varieties of music. So here we are 55 years later, and we're lucky enough to have a guest who was there from the first note, and he's still going strong. He was responsible for providing some amazing voiceover narrative for the Emmy Award-winning Laurel Canyon documentary that is, in my mind, the very best movie ever made on that scene. Would you please welcome the former lead guitarist of Love and a rock and roll original, Johnny Eccles.
4: Good evening, Brian. How are you? How are you, man? I'm doing just great, man. How are you?
3: I'm doing fine, and I want to thank you so much for being here today. There's a lot of ground to cover, but before we discuss the history and like the backstories of this great band, I wanted to ask you about Laurel Canyon. You were one of the principal narrators, uh, along with photographer Henry Diltz. How did you get involved in this project?
4: Uh, Jeff Pollack gave me a call and asked if I would be interested in doing this. He knew that I was a little reticent because uh, I had done a couple of these before and they didn't turn out the way I wanted. So he assured me beforehand that they were going to let the people who were involved tell the story the way they lived it. And so uh, that's exactly what they did. And it turned out well.
3: You know, the funny thing is the movie was released in a pretty crowded market. There was another movie about Laurel Canyon, uh, the one where Jacob Dylan mixes interviews with onstage performance. So they were two really, to me, differently made movies. People might've got them confused.
4: Yeah, I think they did. As a matter of fact, I was asked uh, initially to see that. They talked to me about Jacob's project, Jacob Dylan's project, but they gave me very little information. They just said, Hey, you're interested in doing uh, a thing with Jacob Dylan about uh, Laurel Canyon. But that's all they they told me. So, um, you know, I think Jacob's project, it was fine, but it was more inclined toward um, selling Jacob's album and his (laughs) perspective than reality.
3: I don't know about other people, but when I watch these rock documentaries, I always get the feeling that almost every word is scripted by a a writer or director and that the, the guests are just reciting lines. But I didn't feel like that with your movie whatsoever. Laurel Canyon was really unique in that perspective. It was just an amazing job. And I was so happy that they gave you guys the due that you, that you deserve, because there's been several documentaries out where uh, the band Love hasn't really been mentioned in the 60s scene to the extent that you guys were in uh, Allison's film, Allison mm-hmm. Elwood, she's the director. You're involved right now, I believe, in narrating on another project uh, that's coming out called Where the Action Was?
4: Yes, correct, yeah. We uh, have done several of those. This was Dick Clark's thing. And I believe um, we will tell the story from the perspective of the artist and that show, and I believe American Bandstand is also involved in it, but it was um, a, a TV show called Where the Action Is, and uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, I believe they were the house band on this set, and they would bring uh, musicians in, and we would actually play the music rather than doing uh, you know, lip syncs and things. We actually played.
3: Is that coming out on any platform that we can look forward to?
4: Yes, I believe it will be on either Netflix or Epics. I'm not sure if they've worked out which um, medium they will use, but on one of the, the larger streaming services.
3: And and that's that's nearing release or is that still in production?
4: I I think it's still in production now. Uh we've all done our parts and we've done the narration and they've gotten all together.
3: You know, I wanted to start back kind of at the beginning and I know you've probably answered, you know, these questions before, but do you remember when you were a kid the first time that you decided or that you knew you really wanted to pursue music?
4: Yes, I do. I can tell you, I was in elementary school, I think, uh, gosh, second or third grade, and we were having show and tell at school, and there was a kid, his name was Danny, and he had to go to the nurse's office, and he had brought a Harmony Sovereign guitar at this part of show and tell, and he asked me to hold his guitar for him and take care of it, and I said, of course, and so he handed it to me, and I strummed it. And just the vibrations of the strings kind of, you know, it just tickled my soul. And it it was just a love affair that began and and that's still going on to this day. I just fell in love with the sound, the feel, the whole uh, aspect of of the guitar. was just, you know, it was all-encompassing. And and, uh, so uh, it was magic. And so I... Were you self-taught? Well, um Part of my um, Adolf Jacobs um, was with uh, the Coasters. And uh, he was a neighbor, and he had seen me going to school lessons. I was taking lessons at uh, one of the local music schools. And he saw the guitar that I had, and he said, oh, man, this is a piece of crap. You can't <laughs> use this. So he had a Vega kind of a jazz guitar. It's uh, an acoustic um arch top guitar and he said this is what you need and so he just gave it to me and started giving me lessons and so um so he was one of my first teachers and then uh lorendo alnada and uh gosh uh, a little with barney kessel so i'm I'm not self-taught
3: when you were growing up if you could name the three major musical influences that were driving your love of music who would they be
4: Let's see. Well, Johnny Guitar Watson was one. I just thought he was a fantastic musician and showman. Kenny Burrell was another one that was just I loved his playing, his style. He just so smooth. And Barney Kessel, one of my teachers. I loved Barney. He was just a jazz musician. He was a musician's musician, you know. He just he could read and score and arrange, but he was also a very soulful ad-lib jazz musician. And I just loved listening to him. And uh, so he definitely was a major influence.
3: You came from basically a jazz and a blues background before you got into rock?
4: Correct, Yes, yeah. yeah. That's what I would consider myself still. I would consider myself more inclined towards jazz and blues, even though um, I'm mostly known for rock. But that's where my heart is, in, in jazz and blues
3: you and Arthur Lee, the lyrical mastermind and the the band leader of Love, you guys were both born in Memphis and were childhood friends, and then your families both moved to
4: LA? Correct, yeah. Actually, our families go back to before our parents were even born, you know, so we're going back generations, yeah. And um, so Arthur lived uh, a few doors down from me in Memphis, but, you know, he was like three years older than me, so you know, when you're a kid, that's that's major. Yeah, that's and huge. So, huge. Yeah, more like my big brother. And um, they moved to Los Angeles. And probably a few months later, my family moved. And just this is serendipity. We wound up living a couple doors down from each other. Without It wasn't planned. It just worked out that way. So, you know, Arthur's been in my life. You know, he's always, you know, I never knew a time in life that he wasn't there.
3: And then you went to Dorsey High School in L.A., is that correct?
4: Correct, yes.
3: I was actually born and raised in L.A., and my mom was a substitute teacher for the L.A. Unified School System, and one of uh, her regular stops was uh, substitute teaching English at Dorsey. And
1: I I don't
3: know if this was the same time, but it would have been fairly close. Yeah. So Arthur was not – really a musician at this time he's more of a he was an accomplished jock in high school correct yeah Arthur
4: was on the basketball team and he was really really good and he uh, was thinking about or hoping to be um, chosen by one of the colleges to get a scholarship and play um, college basketball wow. he was really really good and you know I, I'd known him as I said my whole life and I'd Would listen to his poetry because he was a a poet or rapper. I guess before there were rappers, it wasn't such a thing. He was just kind of a street poet, you know, and an improvisational um, speaker. And so he would just spit these rhymes out of these stories, and he would tell them. And that would be, you know, something that he did often. And um, I was, you know, deeply involved with music and. Um, Little Richard had become a friend because my uncle uh, managed a club called the California Club, and it was on what they call the Chitlin Circuit. And all of the jazz musicians or blues musicians um, would come into town and they would play there. And when I got to be about 14, 15, um, Billy Preston was a high school and uh, junior high school friend, and we formed a group. And it was called Billy Preston and the Soul Brothers. And wow. We played and we ended up being um, the house band at the California Club. And that's where we met Jimi Hendrix. So Jimmy James at the time was part of that. And Henry Vestine of Canned uh, Heat was also a friend. And we put together this house band and we played behind everybody and uh, this, this was um, kind of the precursor, I guess you'd call it, um, to love. We were ended up being, um, Billy moved on, but um, John Fleckenstein and Don Conker, who were members of that house band, moved over to what um, became love.
3: This whole thing about Little Richard, and this is a great story, you actually were lucky enough to have Little Richard take you on tour in England in 63 and 64 where you met the Beatles. Jimmy was on that tour as well. Can you talk about just what that must have been like for a kid of your age doing that?
4: Oh, that was just fantastic. Uh, at that time, Jimmy was more um, his um, butler, his man Friday, and also the guitar player in the group, and as was Billy Preston. And so we played behind a uh, little Richard. And when we get to Liverpool, we meet these guys they were basically like oh gosh I I don't want to use a pejorative but they were like little sycophants I mean they just were so adoring of Richard
3: talking about the Beatles
4: right
3: you're talking about the the Beatles Beatles, yeah yeah. Yeah.
4: but at at the time you know uh I don't think I even um cared enough to even remember their name you know it was just (laughs) these guys and they they followed Richard around like little puppies and uh i had to go come back to los angeles cuz there was a death in the family so i didn't stay on the tour but um so when i came back i uh, i began playing again and i saw oh gosh about two three months later um, billy came back and we were playing at a club uh called the nightlife uh in los angeles and a messenger came there and we'd never even seen a messenger comes there And he wants to see Billy and he has these tickets and they were from Brian Epstein. Brian, you know, had given these passes to the Hollywood bowl. And, you know, we were wondering, wow, who was that? And she said, he was the guy that managed those dudes that we saw in in, uh, England. And they turned out to be the Beatles. So we had connected that the guys that we knew in Liverpool (laughs) were the same guys that were now this, humongous, you know, sports of nature called the Beatles, And so we were invited to come down to the Hollywood Bowl. And they gave us the passes and we got to go backstage and all of that. All of these screaming girls and it was just mind blowing because we did not expect and had no way of, of even beginning to understand the phenomena that was, you know, the Beatles. So um it, it just it was a major influence when we looked at that as a, and this is what i'm gonna do you know because we saw with these you know they could have any girl that they wanted you know we're still teenage boys and you know that was just something that we, we just thought was fantastic so yeah we um uh, serendipity i guess again that word comes up a lot but we just were in the right place at the right time and and uh were exposed to that and you know right at the, the beginning
3: was that by any chance the 65 hollywood bowl show that you guys yes. Did backstage yes i'm gonna i'm gonna say something here and i don't know if anybody believes me who, who friends are listening to this but i was at that show myself
4: oh really <laughs> yes, i well.
3: was um i was a very little kid and my mother took us down and uh we uh got box seats because she was very generous. She, she spent a lot of money on her kids if she could, if she had it. And I will never forget the the girls jumping into the pool, trying to get at uh, John and Paul. And
0: yeah. I, yes, that <laughs>
3: and was I was re- incredible. It? <laughs> and, and I remember jelly beans being thrown like yellow jelly beans all over yeah. the ground. But what I remember the most was I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear the PA at all because of the screams at some points, the screens were so loud. Yeah, I was a little kid with my hands over my ears and, and like, but everything it, it the, the the equipment really hadn't caught up yet with the, with the noise, right. That, that would That's come from correct, that. Yeah. Yeah. It was
4: just amazing. We just weren't ready for that. And, um, you know, as I said, that was just a, a turning point, I think for us musically, because then, you know, we had been basically a cover band, you know, and now, we uh, could see that people were, they they did their own thing and their own music and had their own style of dress and all of that. So they were a major influence on us. It was a turning point, actually.
3: Regarding Jimi Hendrix, the path that he took, there were a couple of questions I had for you. The first one was, you've been quoted as saying that you saw him. And he he was okay as Jimmy James. And then you saw him a couple of years later, and you were just like, what the... You know, he, he had really made some major progressions.
4: Absolutely. It was unbelievable, the difference. I mean, before when I knew him, he was an okay, just a workman-like guitar player, a club guitar player. And you'd see them just about at any club you go to. There's just a guy that plays the guitar, and he's okay, but he's not a phenomenal. And um, we... Arthur and me went by the Whiskey of Gold go to see Jimi Hendrix. Now, again, I hadn't put Jimi Hendrix together with the guy that I knew back, you know, at the California club named Jimmy James. And uh, when we went in and we were waiting and talking and all of a sudden, he comes up and stands on stage and Arthur says, hey, man, isn't that that guy from the Calum? Wow, yeah, it is. And so uh, when he started playing, you know, our mouths were just open. This guy goes from being, you know, a so-so musician to, you know, just a god-like character. I mean, this guy was fantastic. And, you know, I, it was just hard to figure out how he could go from there to where he wound up in the space of less than a couple of years. So after they did the show, he invited us up to the dressing room and we talked and chatted and stuff. And so I jokingly asked him, man, did you uh, you make a trip down to the crossroads? And, you know, it was funny and we laughed. He said, no, man, I make a daily trip to the woodshed. And that's basically what he, you know, he, whenever you saw Jimmy, even if you're just sitting down chatting with him or whatever, or like we're talking now, he would have a guitar in his hand. He always had a guitar. And uh, it just, uh, it became a part of him. And you know his it shows practice does definitely make perfect and it definitely did for him
3: arthur wrote and produced a single called my diary um in 64 and jimmy jimmy was on that song
4: yes he was he uh i had another gig and couldn't play on that so uh he remembered we remembered the guy from the california club and he asked him to come down and jimmy of course came down because at that time he was broke and so he was going to get paid a session fee for coming down uh, by Billy Revis, the owner of Revis Records. And um, Lady Rosalie Brooks, she uh, did the vocals on it. She did a, a really nice job on the vocals. And uh, yeah, this was a song Arthur wrote about um, his girlfriend. This girlfriend, her name was Anita. And she appears throughout our time as a group. There are so many songs that we did never directly attributed to her. Seven and Seven Is, which you mentioned earlier, that was uh, about her. And a a song called A Message to Pretty, that was about her. And um, Stephanie Knows Who, she's in that. And the castle, again, it's talking about her. So there's so many songs that we did that are relating to this childhood sweetheart of Arthur's. Isn't that
3: weird how women will affect you as a kid and, like, you, you you, can hang on to that and utilize it for musical inspiration and it plays such a huge role for years and years. Yeah. Okay, so you were in Hollywood. You were, I, I believe, you were the lags at this time and then you became the grassroots and you had a residency at the Brave New World. Correct. And I, I have to ask you about the night the Lou Adler incident and also the Lou Adler uh, Bob Dylan single incident. Can you, can you elaborate some on that? Okay.
4: We were playing, Brian McLean had joined us by then and Brian had been the roadie for the birds and he joined us and um, we were on break. And this guy who had been drinking comes up to us and he's just effusive in his praise. Oh, you guys are great. And, He introduces himself and, you know, neither of us knew who he was, but uh, he was with this young lady and he's trying to impress her, it seems, with who he was. And he's telling us he's going to make us into the next people, and that we're going to just be huge superstars and just effusive in his praise. So this goes on for a while. And uh, we notice that it's time for us to go back on stage because we were just on the break. And Brian basically cut him off and said, "Man, you know, why don't you speak to our manager? Because we've got to go back and play." Now, under normal circumstances, that would have been fine. Nobody he would have said, "Cool, can you have a card or something?" But instead, he, having uh, been inebriated at the point, he just took it the wrong way and just went off. How dare you insult me like this? Don't you know who I am? And then he says something that made us laugh. You'll never work in this town again. And so Brian and I, of course, uh, it was just an absurd statement. So we basically laughed in his face and went back inside to play. And oh, maybe two months later, one of the regulars at the club said oh, I just heard your new record, and it's so cool. New record. She didn't know the name of it. She said, that's called Mr. Jones. And I said, well, we don't have a record. She says, yes, you do. It's the grassroots. You know, we were the grassroots, and they put out a record. And um, we finally convinced her that it wasn't us, and that we went down to a place called Wallach's Music City in Hollywood, and the record store there had every record in existence, basically. And we found the record and you would go into these little booths and you could preview the record before you bought it. Or just as kids, you would just sit in the little booths and listen to music all day until they kicked us out. But anyway, we went in and heard the song and it was like a Ballad of Thin Men by Bob Dylan and it was a group called The Grassroots and it was produced by Lou Adler and then I remember Lou Adler. That's the guy. And then, you know, it all came together. And what ended up happening was Lou Adler decided that that the grassroots was a cool, interesting name. But he also knew that we had a huge following in Hollywood. And Wallach's Music City, this is before computers, they were one of the record stores that that they would check out the different stores to find out how a records doing. And then they would make up the charts based on that and this record was just selling like hotcakes because the people still didn't know it wasn't us so uh they went and bought it and of course by the time they find out that it's somebody else it's too late they've already bought it so the record moved up the charts based on that and um we had a what's called a poor man's copyright where you uh, send yourself a registered letter and it's sealed and you put all the information in the letter. And if you go to court, the judge unseals it. And if you have prior claim, usually it'll prevail. But we have spoken to an attorney and they said, this guy is really a big shot in the music business, the guy that you insulted. So um, it would be probably, it would behoove you to just get a new name because Fighting him in court is going to cost you a lot of money and you're going to have a lot of people upset with you and uh, you could end up destroying your career before it even starts. uh, What year was this? This would have been 1965.
3: So Bob didn't want to put it out as Bob Dylan? I'm kind of confused. No, no, that was the
4: grassroots. Bob Dylan wrote the song. They just used one of Bob Dylan's songs. No, these were studio musicians that, he got together up in San Francisco okay. and um, he just gave them the name The Grassroots because he knew immediately they would sell a lot of records. I they got it. I
3: got it. it. Yeah. I was trying to figure out because I uh, saw so it was a cover of Ballad of a Thin Man. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So at this time you were getting some, uh, some interesting people, you know, checking you out. And I think that's the greatest compliment that you can give a, a young band is when well-known well bands come and check you out. So the Rolling Stones would come down and, and see you guys from time to time?
4: Yeah, that's when we became by then we had moved over to a place called Beatolitos and we had changed our name to Love then. And yeah, the Rolling Stones would come down, the birds would often see us. Uh, the Led Zeppelin before they became Led Zeppelin just to come in and see us. Oh gosh, the Doors of course would hang out with because we were friends with the Doors and And later, uh, we'll speak about this later. We actually got them their record deal, but so, yeah. yeah. And, uh, see, we were, uh, Cosmo Valley is where Vito Lito's was. And it was right behind, um, a place called Shelley's Manhole. And that was the place where all the jazz musicians of the day would play. So Miles Davis, uh, Paul Horn, Coltrane, uh, Charlie Mingus. Anyway, they would play there. And, um, on their breaks, they would come out in, in the alley behind it, and they'd see all of these people. We'd have literary people lined up around the block, and they would put speakers outside because the club was so small it would hold maybe seventy-five people, but they could put hundreds and hundreds of people outside, and they would, you know, put these huge voices and theater speakers in. So there was more action going on outside than inside the club. I
3: think I'm familiar with that street. It's Cosmos Alley, is just like south of Hollywood Boulevard. Over there, where like Bordner's and all those places are now.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: So, you guys are playing. You're now. Now you've come up with the name Love. I hear that David Crosby uh, gave you a little advice on. Uh, you guys were so enamored of the birds.
4: Yeah, if you listen to our first album, it's, it's very you know it's reminiscent. <laughs> we don't actually sound like them, but we're using the kind of the twelve string jangly guitar sound. And um, Brian was close with the birds because he used to be their roadie. And so we got to know David and David said, uh, you know, there's already a bird. And if you guys want to make it, you're going to have to do your own thing. And that turned out to be really, really good advice because, you know, as he said, there was already a bird, and they were doing a fantastic job (laughs) at being the birds. So, um, you know, us coming along as, you know, uh, Trying to imitate them really wasn't a way to actually, you know, to make a mark in in, uh, music. So uh, we developed our own style, which we would call eclectic. You know, we played all different kinds of music and and it was fun. It was like we were basically, if you listen to music back then on the radio, you would hear Frank Sinatra and then you may hear uh, Howlin' Wolf and then you may hear the Philharmonic orchestra all played on the same radio station. You know, instead of having these these little niche kind of things, you know, the top 40 or whatever they do now, they would have all these different types of music and different genres would be played back-to-back on local radio stations.
3: Also on stages, like, I mean, the Fillmore would have, like, uh, Buffalo Springfield, Taj Mahal, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, uh, and... Just various various genres. Everything wasn't just like segmented and slotted the way it is now.
4: That's see. That's when the corporate interests and the business people started getting involved, and they decided, well, if this is a hit, then do the same thing again and again right. and again and again. And so that's how music is, and it, it evolved into that. But during that point, music was just open and free, and you know, so many different and diverging different kinds of. of music would be played and you were exposed to such, you know, talent back then. You know, as I say, you'd listen to, you know, Bert Bachrach and then you'd listen to uh, Muddy Waters or, you know, or the Rolling Stones or someone, all on the same station. And so that's basically what we did. We wanted to be that. So we would play folk music and then we'd do hard rock. And then we do a jazz, ten song, or maybe a blues fusion. And, you know, it just made it interesting. It it kept us involved because we were always doing something different with each song. So we couldn't be categorized. And that ended up being our kind of our, our mantra, so to speak, as um, not being able to put us in, in a bag so,
3: So for all those people who are, like, quarantined and and locked down and at home right now and and maybe uh, sending uh, music files back and forth to each other, describe what Laurel Canyon, which you refer to as Oz, can you describe what that was like when you would have these bands playing in clubs and people would come back, jam at parties all night? I mean, that must have been just, like, for a young kid, that just must have been (laughs) – like nirvana i mean
4: absolutely it was nirvana so next well two doors down from me frank zappa lived right across uh, mark and the turtles um gosh pat and lolly vegas it became red bone they lived a couple doors down so there are just you know the buffalo springfield and, and neil was in the same area so on this one street either kirkwood or lookout mountain in this one little area just about everybody that you heard on the radio from the Doors, the Birds, Buffalo Springfield, the Eagles later on, or, or the Stone Ponies and Love, and uh, so many different groups all lived basically you know, within um, a few doors of each other. And so we all were friends. And this is so amazing that it just happened like that because it was these really lovely homes, but for some reason the rents were just really, really cheap. Like you could rent a house now that would probably sell for $2 million and you could pay maybe $65, dollars a month to rent it back then. You know? It's just <laughs> incredible. And so, yeah, we had just, you know, we this was outside of Laurel Canyon, but uh, I think it was either Lillian Gish or Clara Bow. anyway. They owned this place we call it the castle. And it was like a sixty seventy room, humongous mansion. Um, this would have been in the Las Velas area near Griffith Park. And it ended up costing us like I think one hundred and fifty dollars or something to live in this magnificent place. And basically, all we had to do was keep it up and and pay the taxes, and that ended up costing us each about one hundred and fifty dollars a month to live in this. If you saw this place now, I mean, it just looks like something out of uh, some kind of fairy tale. It's just all gilt and marble, and this old teak and Brazilian rosewood family, just a magnificent place. And-
3: it sounds like the kind of place that you would actually construct if you're doing like a like a hard day's night or something, and all the all the guys would be hooked up in this house. And but only that's in L.A. in prime real estate, like a, like near Beechwood Canyon or whatever. I mean that that's yeah. uh. Real quick, I wanted to ask you about Peter Tork's house because I keep hearing about how that house brought so many people, with C.S.N.Y., Jimi Hendrix and the Monkeys. It, it's just like everybody just be like hanging out there.
4: Yeah, well he was, you know, kind of the gadfly, so he knew everybody, and so everyone just hung out with him, and it was cool going to his place. Because, you know, I would rather go to his place and hang out than to have him come to mine because Peter was a nudist. And so he would just take off his clothes and I, you know, wasn't prepared for that. Going to his house is fine, but not having him sitting on my furniture, you know, but naked. And that was his thing. But yeah, it was, you know, but, but the thing that I was mentioning earlier, we all just hung out together because we were all put basically by... Now the universe just put everybody in the same little area on the same street, and we got to know each other, and just about every local band that was playing at clubs anywhere in Hollywood ended up being signed by a major record company. So you would have heard, you know, as I say, Buffalo Springfield or the Leaves, or you would have heard the Doors, Iron Butterfly, Love, all you know playing together or playing on the same street in one of these little clubs. And so the record companies just went through and signed everybody. I don't think that could ever happen again. You know, it was just one moment in time that uh, was just amazing. Trying to put these pieces together
3: as far as the chronological order. And if I go out of line, you know, I, I want to maybe backtrack if possible. But sure, you guys were playing in some clubs. Can you tell us how you met Jack Holtzman, the uh, main man over at Electro Records, and how that
4: how, how all that went down? Well, there's a fellow named Herb Cohen. Herb Cohen was the manager of um, Frank Zappa, and we were friends with Zappa. So um, they asked, or Zappa asked, if a friend of Herb, he was a record company executive from New York, if he could come by and hear us. And I said, of course. He said, well, can you guys? getting backstage and all of that. So, well, of course, we'll give him. you know, you'll be able to come backstage and chat with us. So we were playing at Beat Olito's. And um, the backstage was basically a little storeroom off to the side where everybody would relax after our set. Anyway, um, he came down and he heard us. And uh, he wanted to talk. And we were cramped in this little room. So we decided to go to Cantor's. Cantor's the all-night deli in Hollywood where all of the rock musicians would hang out. So we went down to Cander's, and he introduced himself again, told us, you know, that he was involved with Judy Collins and Tim Buckley and um, that he owned uh, Electra and was interested in signing us. So we talked with him for a while and um, I asked him if we could own our publishing. Because most record labels will not let you do that, especially back then. And he said, of course, you can keep your publishing and own the masters, which we do to this day. And um, so we ended up signing with them. That was unprecedented, um, right? I mean, Yes, it was. And that was because of little Richard. One of the things that he had told me way back when I was a kid is always own your music. Don't let them take your music from you. Own it. And so we um, established a publishing company called Grassroots Music. And um, we own the masters and the publishing for our songs, which now several artists do, and Bill Dylan and others, and they can sell their catalogs. So, yeah, um,
3: really. <laughs> so,
4: yeah, that was- so you
3: were the first rock band that Electra signed, is that right? Correct, yeah. I want to get into this story that's been told many times, but uh, you were effectively in some respects the agent and probably should have gotten 15% of whatever the contract was, but you were like very instrumental in getting the doors signed to Electra. Can you talk about your relationship with Jim Morrison, which I find interesting because anybody who knew Jim Morrison, I'd always like to you know hear some Jim Morrison stories, but how did that all work about? Because everyone was sort of, In the scene at the same time and and they were looking for a record deal but people they were kind of uneven live Mm -hmm.
4: well jim was a very close friend of ours and um he was always hanging out he was just there and so we knew the doors from all of the clubs and, and just living in the area and but jim had a problem with drink he was i'll put it you know kindly he was you know an alcoholic When he wasn't drinking, he was the sweetest, nicest guy. But as soon as he started drinking, which was every day, he would just become this abusive, really hard to be around character. So when he kept asking us to hook him up with our record company, and nobody really wanted to vouch for him, because if you hooked him up with the record company, they're going to kind of, you're kind of responsible for the stuff that he does and so a couple of months go by and people at mca records which at the time was a humongous company and they had this clout that electra just did not have and they offered us which at the time would have been probably one of the largest signing bonuses of any group i mean it would have been more than the Beatles and stones and all these people combined it would have been fifty thousand dollars which At the time, as I said, was just a humongous son to sign the group. So they offered us that, to leave a lecture and sign with them. And Arthur and I came up with the problem, well, me actually, but um, I'll include him, kind of ameliorated. Um, We came up with this brilliant idea that if we hooked a lecture up with the doors, they would uh, have a group in the game. And they would let us go. They would allow MCA to buy our contract down. So we invited Jack to come down to the whiskey and hear the doors. And he came all the way from New York and he's there waiting to hear this fantastic group that we've been bragging about. And Jim is drunk. Really, really drunk. And they were miserable. The group sounded horrible when the Set was over. Jack just looked at us, and you know, he, we could see that he was really, really ticked off. He said, "You bring me all the way out here for this," and you know, basically, "How dare you?" And so, you know, we went down several notches in his eye, but um, we managed to talk him into coming back again. And he came back again, but this time Jim was sober, I, I believe Iron Butterfly were on the bill with him. So you know you have this kind of rivalry going. So Jim put on a rock clinic. You know he was just great and did all of the like My Fire and the End and all of these songs. And Jack saw what we saw that the Doors, you know, were going to be something because they just had this thing with Jim, you know, out front and, and this kind of sullen, moody, really super handsome guy and all the girls just loved him and you know we just knew that anybody
3: could see that he seemed to me to be a guy that wasn't particularly trying to impress an audience he wasn't he wasn't out there trying to say hey like me he was up there just doing his thing i think that self confidence and that charisma good looking dude on top of it but i mean you put all that together i just thought it was funny that he was in a band with um three three musicians who were into transcendental meditation And he was such a, wasn't he just such a different person? I mean, literally he'd be out walking on a hotel ledge while they'd be doing meditation.
4: Well, yeah, he was, as I say, Jim was different. He was a strange human being, but he, he was really kind of had a magnetic personality. You either liked him when you saw him, when he wasn't drinking, which was rare or you hated his gut, but, he was also a poet just like Arthur. He wasn't much of a musician, but he was, you know, a fantastic wordsmith, and he could put words together in such a way that, you know, he painted a picture. And, and you know, Arthur did this, as I mentioned, and so did Jim, and they just had this ability to, to do that, you know, to paint a picture with words. And so we knew that that he... And the Doors, even though the Doors didn't have a bass player when they played live, so they didn't have the full impact that a rock and roll group with the bass and the driving drums would have, but they had a different sort of, you know, very tight, well-rehearsed sound. And contrary to what it appears, Jim was very much into wanting to be, because at the time, love was the the biggest group in Hollywood. Even with the birds and all of the other people, we could still uh, draw them you know, by orders of magnitude. We just were, you know, humongous at that time. And he wanted to be like us. That was his dream is to be love. So he, um, as I mentioned, asked and asked and asked. And when we finally got him looked up, then he just changed. You know, uh, he became this kind of uh, haughty character. He, he was like a character out of a Hemingway novel or, or something. He was, you know, not the same guy that we had known for all of these years. He, all of a sudden, once success and stardom and fame started to come his way, he did his best to push it away. You know, and instead of you know the the Greek god Adonis look that the girls loved, he became overweight and with a big Santa Claus beard. It seems like he was trying his best to destroy that which he had created, which is in itself strange. It's like yeah. bipolar. You
3: know? I think sometimes the expectations and the fame get to certain artists and they kind of do a bout face to try to, uh, you know, walk away from that. I mean, it's, You can see it in some artists in present day, like, for instance, Jack White or the Black Keys or some other band, like Beck, for instance. They become super popular, and then they deliberately put out records that are less commercial just in a way to just sort of get that pressure off, because Jim was really in a bubble. I mean, I've studied the the guy's story a lot, and I, I find it interesting that Electra had the two best. So by this point, the doors are signed, right? So you guys Correct. are both. So Electra's got the two baddest ass bands in LA on the label. Was there competition between you guys and the doors once that happened?
4: Well, it was, you know, because of the fact that love was so huge in Hollywood, we were in the bubble. You know, it was like it was night and day the difference between us and the group just right under a season be it um, the Buffalo Springfield, the Doors, Iron Butterfly, birds, any of these people loved was just notches above them. So we didn't have that, any competition. And so as far as the Doors were concerned, since we hooked them up, the only kind of, uh, I guess, uh, the way we kind of felt uh, betrayed, I guess, was because now, all of the money that had been spent promoting love and, and getting together for tours and all of that, all of a sudden went to the Doors because um, the Doors had taken off. And uh, as I mentioned before, the young girls were, they were just driven by that. And all of these little girls would go out and buy the Doors records. So they immediately shot to number one and the Doors eclipsed love as far as uh, on, on the lecture because. They were selling so many more records than we were. And after a point, um, outside of Hollywood, they started making noises. Now, as I said, we were humongous here in in L.A. and Hollywood. But when you got outside of this area, because we were a mixed race group, which, you know, is a whole other story. But we couldn't play in most of this country, like in places in the South. They would book us because when they saw, you know, either they didn't see the album or when they saw the album, they couldn't tell that we were a mixed race group until they saw it.
3: That was the next question I was going to ask you, because Arthur's voice sounds crystal clear and pop. Did sometimes people freak out who hadn't seen you before when they saw you live? They thought you guys were a white band?
4: Yes, they did. And most of the promoters did. And many times, as I said, we'd be booked for a gig and they'd find out and then it would be canceled. Or they would expect that we would play in front of a segregated audience, which, you know, we would have no part of that nonsense. And so uh, we lost so many gigs. And the record company is of a mind that you need to go out on tour and promote these records because the more places you go, the more places are going to buy these albums. and they're gonna... So we were kind of stuck. We could play in, in Hollywood and... and uh, all of California, we were cool, and many other places like uh, up in Oregon or Washington State, and uh, the East Coast, we could play. But every place in between, with the exception of Texas, that was the one place that we could huh. play in the South. Other than that, we all of these places, we couldn't play. And so the Doors could, of course, and they went out and, and just you know did their thing. And so, of course, they're making way, way, way more money for for the record company, and so record companies just kind of split uh, off of us and switched onto them. but so
3: record companies tend to do that they tend to yeah, of course, as soon as the they're money starts yeah, as soon as the money starts going one direction and the momentum it's uh were, were you invited uh, was love invited to play at uh Monterey Pop because the doors yes, did we, not
4: we didn't play because they didn't offer us. Enough money to play And We had been, you know, playing uh, these freebies or, or uh, gigs that shouldn't have, didn't pay as much as they should have. You know, we're we're doing things to, um, that weren't necessarily helpful to us, and we just thought this isn't going to work. He's not offering us enough money, and then the fact that he had Adler to deal
3: with Lou Adler. You, yeah, you yeah. Yeah, I think Adler. he did
4: that. He purposely lowballed us because we should have been offered a much much larger amount of money and i think he did that on purpose because i don't think he really wanted us there and the doors
3: so, weren't there either right the doors no, had a number they, one they album there because
4: but... when we weren't uh invited we were invited but you know as i said we were insulted and so uh they went along with us and decided yeah we're not going to play either.
3: oh really it was a yeah. it was like a thing where they were back they were like had your back they're backing you off oh and... yeah they
4: always had our backs i mean the, yeah. the doors were in our corner all the way
3: because I was wondering if it was because you guys were both on Electra. I couldn't figure out. It's just a coincidence. You know, I talked to Al Cooper a few months ago and he was the stage manager or one of the stage managers there. And he was saying that, uh, he wasn't really talking smack about Lou Adler, but it, you know, it was, there was a lot of politics going on. And, uh,
4: yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of things that were, were happening with him. And, and, uh, we just could not deal with that. So we didn't, didn't play, but nobody knew what that was going to turn into. I mean, it's just another gig up North. And, and so, uh, you know, at the time, well, even afterwards, it didn't turn into what it turned into later until years and years later, it became the thing because it basically catapulted Jimi Hendrix into the, you know, the stratosphere. And, um, so if were it not for him being there, him and Janis Joplin, I doubt it, if people would. Okay, Carlos Santana too also. But it wouldn't have been the, the thing that it was without Jimmy and then setting his guitar on fire and, and that thing.
3: And The Who did a great job at that show yes, too. Yes, they did. I think a lot of it had to do with the movie that D.A. Pennebreaker made, also the movie that they made on Woodstock. Don't you think that – that once you get that on film and that gets run over and over again, that really helps to cement a legacy,
4: so to speak? Absolutely. that's Absolutely, that's correct. But, you know, I'm speaking of at the time, it just, you know, we didn't think of it as this major mistake. We said, ah, another gig we didn't play. It wasn't until later that, you know, we realized, you know, what could have been had we done so. But uh, I'm still of a mind that that probably – wasn't necessarily the best place for us because we needed a more intimate venue. And we also needed to play much longer to kind of get the crowd into us. Did you
3: have any trouble recreating? I know your early, your first two records were pretty garagey, but did you have any trouble recreating some of the studio stuff live? Was that ever a challenge?
4: Not now. We can actually, when you go to our gigs, go online and listen to some of our, Stuff like last year we played, the last one we played was at the Echo here in Hollywood yeah. or uh-huh. the Cab. Listen to those and you hear the strings and horns, except for the minor difference in the voice because you're not hearing Arthur's voice, but you're hearing mine. And my voice is a lot of times we double like a 7-7 is in my little red book. We are doubling. So if you listen to that and close your eyes, you would know that you were not listening. To a very high quality version of the record
3: I mean, yeah oh, I'm, we've sure, I'm sure
4: i'm that good you know?
3: I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the process of recording when you were going into the studio and sort of since arthur wasn't uh, necessarily a musician by nature, how did the arrangements and the work uh, break down were, were you doing Were you doing a lot of the a lot of the musicality in the studio
4: Yes, actually, Brian and I both did this. The way we would put things together, sort of like Elton John and Bernie Huff, the way they would do, you know, he Toppen would send um, Elton John the words, and Elton would put the music to it. Well, we do it the opposite. Arthur was always singing and always writing songs, and so we'd hear him singing these songs all of the time. I mean, that was just something he did. Just every time he saw it, he's singing a new song, and, and uh, so we would get together, and Arthur would sing the melodies. And Brian and I would play different chords and we would experiment and Kenny too, to some extent, but it was mostly Brian and and we would play chords and Arthur would say, I like that, that's cool. And that would be part of his song. Once he said he liked something, it became part of his song and we always had to play that. So, you know, it was trial and error over a period of months. We would play something and he'd like it or he didn't like it he'd you know, say, well, maybe if you did this or that. you know. So he's adding, even though he didn't have the musical ability or the knowledge to tell us what he was hearing, he could recognize it once he heard it. And once he heard it, as I say, it was part of the song. And so by trial and error and experimenting here and experimenting there, we put the music together to art his words.
3: And his lyrics, his lyrics were metered very kind of unusually. There there would be, it wasn't like you were writing to a Stones or a Beatles song. So was it difficult to get the music to wrap around and fit to the um, sort of Byzantine, you know, elaborate structure of his lyrics?
4: Actually, now, if you listen to Forever Changes, everything, not everything, but most of this is based around an F7 chord form. So we're playing that basic form and then we're sliding down and we're going to A in an F7 form. So everything sounds familiar. Go back and listen to the album and you'll see where the the certain chord structures repeat themselves so many times. And that's just, you know, the way uh, when you're hearing something and you're hearing words and, and you don't have, You're not wedded to that. You know, it's not something that came from your imagination. It came from someone else's. And so a lot of times you will sort of find yourself doing a formulaic thing. We're doing, as I mentioned, the F7 form. And so we ended up doing that so much that it sounds familiar because once you hear one song, you can kind of relate it to the next song and related to the next right
3: song. right and
4: so that's how that's what's put together
3: I, I want to talk about the song seven and seven is simply because it was one of those songs that immediately you could put in any sort of classic garage rock lineup next to the seeds or the spandels or anything it was just a mind-blowingly aggressive song the the vocals and the words were almost spit in your face the, the guitar that, that you played on that was just I mean it was a, unbelievable I, I heard there were some issues with the drums and everything was that a hard song in the studio to, to finish
4: oh it was we probably did well over a hundred takes of that song because I had an idea in mind to, to do kind of it started out kind of a surf idea you know with the vibrato And then Kenny Forsey and I had, we had a contract with Thomas Organ or Box, and they had sent us a bass pedal. Now there had never been before that a pedal for a bass. This was a distortion pedal, but what it was was a volume booster. And we started working on this at home and working on different songs. And I'm doing this, this thing with the vibrato and the trim oil and he's got this bass effect And we basically worked that out before we even got together with Arthur to put it to a song. We had worked out the sound before there was a song. Hmm. And Arthur had had this song that I mentioned before that had to do with um, Anita. Uh, Seven and Seven Is, meaning they're both born on March 7th. And so um, he's talking about his relationship with her. And also, it's kind of autobiographical in that um, he's in the corner's mind in an ice cream cone. Well, his mother had gotten this Merlin, you know, one of these conical hats that, uh, I think, Mickey Mouse wore that at Disneyland. <laughs> and whenever he, she would punish him as a kid, she put him in the corner and make him wear that little hat. And that was basically a dunce cap. And so that was, he's talking about that and his relationship with the girl wanting to be a man so he could be away from his parents and and, uh, get together with Anita, or Pretty, as he called her. So we took that song, which was kind of almost a Dylan-esque song, and put it together with the raucous, loud guitar and this bass that had a really volume doubling effect so it had feedback on the bass that was unheard of back at the time. This was the form level. You know, you didn't have that kind of thing. And so we put that together. And we had decided because of the fact that this was such an integral part of what we were trying to do was the sound. The sound was everything, in other words. So the drummer had to keep up with basically this is the click track before there are click tracks. Right. The vibrato is at a specific tempo and he has to stay within that tempo because if he changes even just a millisecond, then everything is thrown off and he's lost and we have to start all over. So that's why as I said, we did well over a hundred takes. Jack Holtzman and Bruce Botney, the engineer and producer, they were upset telling us, Listen, play it straight, and then we'll add the vibrato.
3: No, 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 no.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't the song. You know, yeah. The song was the sound, and so we had to get that sound on tape. And that's why it took so long. But finally, after all of those tapes, he was able to do it all the way through without a mistake. And that's what you hear. And the second part of it, where after the explosion, there's, that was a song that I had written called Lonely Guitar. Yeah, And we put that together with um, the other part of 7 and 7 is, and that's how we ended up with the song that was so different for the times. I mean, this song was just so in your face and loud and boisterous. And when you heard us, because we did that every night after it became a hit, every time we played, that was the song we closed with. Does
3: the tempo accelerate at all toward the end, or is that, It's just uh, the drummers. It seems almost like the song kind of starts off fast and just like goes faster and faster and faster and faster.
4: Yes, and what's happening is we're finally looking at the drummer because before we were we were like we're in this large studio at Sunset Town and our amplifiers are turned toward the wall because they need to be really loud, but we don't want them bleeding into the other mic into the vocal because we did this live. You know the vocal and everything is live because we're playing on a two-track machine, so I mean we couldn't do any overdubs at that point.
3: Yeah, no, there's no, there's no coming back and dropping something in or uh, no.
4: You had to do it all the way through, right, or start over again. And so finally, toward the end, yeah, it's speeding up, and I can see him speeding up, and so we just instead of letting it drift until we had to start over again, we just fed up a little bit with him and so we kept it it on meter and that in itself was amazing that we both Kenny and I were able to you know and that's weird that you could hear that but yeah we're slightly speeding it up before it gets to the point where it's frantic and you know it's like an orgasm with the explosion and then you're into the afterglow with the slowness and you know you're laying back, smoking a cigarette.
3: He must have been sweating bullets, your drummer, oh, by the end yeah. of that session.
4: Poor kid, because Arthur is yelling at him. Man, you better not mess this up again, and, or you're going to get fired. and So he's worried about getting fired, and and you know everybody is, because he's the only one that's causing us to do these things. And my fingers are starting oh, man. to bleed. You know, cause <laughs> playing the same thing over and over and over kind of gets to, get to you. Anyway, it worked out.
3: You've been listening to GonzoRilla, the podcast about music, movies, comedy, and all forms of obsessive consumption. My name is Brian Bentley, and I hope you guys will stay tuned for part two of our interview with Johnny Eccles from the classic eclectic rock 60s band Love. We're going to go step by step through the amazing recording processes involved with the making of Love's classic album, Forever Changes and why it's earned the title of the greatest rock album of all time in the British rock press. We'll explore what really happened to Love, the ill-timed moves and self-destructive forces that brought the band to such an early end. In the meantime, here's that proto-punk nugget we were just talking about, Love's Seven and Seven Is, again, featuring the extraordinary Johnny Eccles on guitar. See you in part two.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was an extensive uh, interview uh, with uh, Johnny Eccles. We're going to hear uh, part two of the interview. Uh, Johnny Eccles, of course, a co-founder with Arthur Lee of the legendary uh, band Love uh, in uh, 1965, 1966, uh, when they released their first album. This is from their second album entitled Capo uh, uh, from uh, early 1967. And then we'll go back to the interview uh, with uh, Johnny Heckels. who uh, From the second uh, Love album, uh, featuring uh, R. Lee on vocals there and Johnny Eccles on guitar. And we're going to listen to the uh, second part of this uh, rare archival interview with uh, Johnny Eccles discussing the history of band Love and uh, so many other aspects of uh, the poplar and jazz and blues and rhythm and blues music scene. Uh, both from an artistic as well as economic perspective uh, in the 1960s. Let's listen in.
3: and welcome to part two of our interview with Johnny Eccles. Want to back announce that great song. A little snippet you heard from Bummer in the Summer. That's off their incredible third album, Forever Changes, that's what we're going to be talking about. You're listening to Gonzarilla, the podcast about music, movies, comedy, and all forms of obsessive consumption. My name is Brian Bentley. If you guys were with us in part one, you heard Johnny talk about touring with Little Richard, hanging with the Beatles, playing with Jimi Hendrix and Billy Preston, and how Love ruled the Hollywood Sunset Strip club scene in the mid-1960s. Johnny was also filling in details of how they recorded their proto-punk nugget, Seven and Seven Is, a song that absolutely inspired bands like the Stooges and MC5 years ahead of its time. So we left off just before the recording process involved in some of the sessions for Love's third album, Forever Changes a record that forever changed the music landscape for many of us. So let's pick it up in part two with our interview with Johnny Eccles. Let's move on to the record that changed, I mean, obviously changed your lives, changed the lives of so many people. And I've talked to young guys who talk about just what a mind blower that forever changes is. This was your third record. I would rank it up with Pet Sounds and Revolver and Aftermath and and all those records that, were so transcendent to everything that was going on that there was really nothing to compare them to. That was originally supposed to be a double album?
4: Correct, yes. We were starting to get, you know, a little missed because Arthur's getting credit for stuff and Brian and I are actually writing the music and and Kenny also, you know, to a degree. But we're feeling that we're being left out. We're not getting credit that we deserve. So we had uh, decided that Forever Changes, that the project that turned into Forever Changes was going to be a double album. And so Brian and I worked on songs so I would do one side, Brian would do the other side and then um, the other two sides would go to Arthur. So we had worked on them for months and months. And when we get to the studio, we hear that just it's just dropped on the set. The record company can't afford a double album right now because it's really expensive when you add strings and horns in the double album so that they would do the second part uh, later and it would be another album entirely rather than a double album. Well, of course, you know, both of us were devastated by that, Brian and myself. But Brian took it harder than anybody and he basically staged a minor mutiny. He wouldn't play Arthur's stuff the way he would have played normally. There wouldn't be the same panache and eel that he would put to it. And um, when we started playing, it just wasn't working. And, you know, he's sulking and stuff. So um, Bruce Botnick, who was kind of an ombudsman, he they said it was the producer, but actually Arthur produced it, and Bruce was just kind of keeping the peace. And um, so they brought people from the wrecking crew down and they were gonna play with us, you know, to kind of get the foundation together. And then we would add our little flourishes and I'd do the leads and all of that and maybe we could get this thing done. Well, um, they brought the wrecking crew down and I had known Don Randy and uh, Hal Blaine, you know, from playing studio work before. So uh, we started. Now, these guys are fantastic musicians, but they didn't sound like us at all, you know. And so when we did the first couple of songs and realized that this just can't work because these guys are polished and, you know, but they don't sound like us. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, it just, we got to the point where we're just going to call it quits. And uh, we just sat down and talked to each other and decided, is this the way, you know, you want to go out, you know kind of a fizzle and we just kind of you know talked it out electro offered us a bit more money and so we went back into the studio and and finished the album because i mean we had worked on these songs for a while so it wasn't like we didn't know the songs or there was something keeping us from playing them. it was just you know egos and hard feelings that was keeping us from finishing it so once we would straightened out all of those problems and decided that we we're going to do it, we finished it within, I think, less than a week. Yeah,
3: it was listed as a, as a sixty-four hours total, which is not much. I mean, that's yes. that's moving
4: yeah. pretty fast. Yeah, it, you know, as I said, it was we were ready to go. It was just once we got over the the, the hard feelings. I, I think
3: you know, alone again, or which is a song that a lot of people recognize, and they don't. But they don't know who the band is. But they know, oh yeah, that's a great song. I think what makes that song is the flamenco guitar on that. Can you talk about how you decided to go in that direction?
4: Okay. Well, that is serendipitous because initially, uh, Alone Again was supposed to have a banjo intro. Now we were, you know, young and arrogant, and we thought, uh, ah, ban- banjo—it's strings. We tune in, that we could play it. So neither of us, Brian or I, had any experience playing banjos. So we rented them and they brought them and put them down really nice banjos, but we couldn't play the damn things. I mean, it just sounded horrible. And it sounded so bad. And we spent hours trying to figure out something to do with these things that uh, Alone Again was just about to be shelved and we were just going to do another song. And... um, we went to lunch and we came back and I'm in the corner noodling. I play Spanish, you know, riffs and things by Lorendo Almeida, as I mentioned before, was a teacher. So that's one of the good things to do to warm up is to play Spanish riffs. And so that's what I'm doing, just, you know, doing finger picking and playing Spanish and flamenco runs. And uh, David Angel, who was a ranger, he heard that and it was his idea. So why don't you open the song with One of those, and do that. And so I started, you know, fiddling with it and coming up with little, you know, touches here and there. And and uh, Brian said, "Yeah, okay, man, let's do it." Because he was becoming, you know, upset that his song was going to be shelved. So if there was a way to save it, then he was all for it. And so we did this a couple of times. And I played the the Spanish riffs in the beginning and opened the song with that. And it started to really, you know, become something. It was a so-so song before. But then um, David said, let's put a trumpet part, and he's going to double your guitar line. So there's a little thing where I go, we're playing in G-flat, and I have slipped down to B-flat to do this little run. And the trumpet mirrors that. He's playing da-ba-dee, da-da-da-dee-da-da.
1: So he plays what I had
4: already played, and it really, then Bruce, you know, did some little twiddling of the knobs and brought my guitar up a little in certain places and lowered it. And um, it ended up being really a great song where it started out being, as I said, a so-so kind of bluegrassy song, but that was all just serendipity and having a magnificent arranger, uh, David Angel, and he's the one that actually you know, kind of put that together from the ideas that we were working on. He just brought them all together and turned them into a song.
3: The flamenco uh, guitar and the uh, horns and everything and the strings, it gives the song a a grandeur and a a scope that is cinematic. Yes, it is. It's amazing.
4: And Brian was one happy camper. I tell you, because that song has earned a, a boatload of money. It's been covered you know, dozens of times.
3: I, I got to tell you, my favorite song on the record, specifically for the last 30, 45 seconds of it, is uh, House Is Not a Motel. I have never taken acid, but I once cranked that song up with the headphones and listened to your guitar at the end of it, and I, I felt like I had. It's an amazing, amazing song.
4: Well, I keep using the term serendipity, but this again was weird because when we did the first solo, we know we had finished the song and then now we're at an 8-track studio, so I can overdub now. And uh, I did the first solo, but there was some problems with the headphone system and I couldn't hear what I had played. Now, I need to be in the studio. I can't be in the booth playing. I need to be in there with my amp, you know, and just crank it up and play. And it was either go in the booth and listen to it, which would have taken away the, the spontaneity and the feeling, or not play two guitar solos. And so Arthur worked it out too. He's in the booth and I can see him. So when the first guitar goes up and higher on the neck, Arthur is raising his arms up high. And when I'm playing lower, he puts them down low. And so I played the second solo remembering what I thought I had played on the first one. And it's so strange that they actually blend together. And it sounds like it was written that way, but that was just total, just an accident. And that's all
3: you at the end of the song, right? Yes,
4: that's all me playing, everything.
3: You mentioned a situation with uh, Neil Young. And Neil coming down to record uh, some tracks. I mean, he had that song, Expecting to Fly, which was a big... Everybody was talking about that record because it was so well produced. Can you tell us briefly like how that worked out or didn't work out?
4: Well, you see, we knew Neil. We used to hang with Neil, smoke grass and hang out and trip with Neil. And we just could not accept him as a producer. It just wouldn't work. Now, we didn't know he was even to be involved as we get to the studio. And Bruce Botnick had asked Neil to come down because at that point, Neil was hard going through hard times, and he was about to be evicted. Really? And he had no money, wow. so he was going to get a producer's cut for producing this one song. It would have been, like Daily Planet. And um, when he got there, as I said, Arthur and me both started laughing, and, and you know, we the laughter turned into wait a minute, man, you you can't. You, be serious because Bruce is serious, Neil is serious, but we're not. And so, um, after a little talk, and, and uh, we just say, I Man, this can't work, and don't do this. Why don't you just pay him, you know, whatever for the day, and uh, let's just call it a day? And that's what they did. So, he had no involvement whatsoever in any part of that. It was just that uh, dumb idea by Bruce Botten to help Neil out, which. Uh, uh. Uh, wouldn't have worked. Yeah,
3: maybe a little overthink on that one, but um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the castle a little bit. Okay. This is a phenomenal story about this place. It was uh, formerly owned by Bella Lugosi.
4: No, 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 that's not Bella Lugosi. This was uh, an old uh, silent film star. Bella Lugosi was where we did the first album cover. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, but the castle was. I'm not sure now, it's either Lillian Gish or, or one of the other uh, silent film stars, and she had moved to uh, Paris, and she had this humongous estate in the Los near Griffin Park, Los Feliz area, and we call it the castle, but it was like a, just a really huge estate, and they owned all of the grounds and stuff, and it was just really lovely, but it had gotten into disrepair, and people started just camping out there and squatting there because no one lived there for years. And uh, the city was getting upset because, you know, people hanging out there and stuff, and the the neighbors didn't like it. So um, Jack Simmons uh, was a friend of Brian McLean's father, who was an architect, and they asked us if we would like to live there. And we said, oh, we can't afford to live there. And he said, Listen, all you have to do is take care of the place, pay the taxes, and that's all you have to do. Well, back then, because the place was, in you know, a kind of in disrepair, it ended up costing us $150 each to live in this humongous mansion that uh, had a the fireplace was large enough that you could walk in it. I think there are pictures of Kenny Forsy standing in the fireplace. It's beautiful marble floors and the blown glass valerian, and this this place was just. I mean, if you saw it, you would have thought a king or a prince lived there. But, um, it, you know, as I said, all of this beautiful rosewood paneling and stuff. But it had started to uh, become mm-hmm. a little derelict. It was losing its charm, and so we got to live there, and it became the party spot. You know, so whenever musicians like Hendrix or Jefferson Airplanes. When they would come to town, you know, they would stay in one of the suites there because they had divided it, it yeah. the into suites, and so it was. Yeah. And so it became the spot basically for for quite a while.
3: L. A. had become uh, such a melting pot and such a attraction for people trying to make it in show business, trying to make in music, that you had all sorts of types of people mingling. And one of the guys that you ran across was a guy by the name of Bobby Boussoulay. Correct. This is actually quite an interesting part of your legacy and story because not many people can talk about a member of the Manson family and discuss his guitar skills, you know, in the same sentence. And I I was curious, how good a guitar player was he and how did you meet him and how did you finally decide, hey, this guy isn't going to do me that much good? We were playing at a
4: place uh, called The Brave New World. I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. And um, during we we would play a song called Revelation. Or we, at the time, was called John Lee Hooker, but we couldn't use his name, so we changed it to Revelation. And uh, we would play this song every night, and we would invite people, you know, to come up and jam because it was just a straight rock and beat, you know, and you could come up and learn it. a you know, a couple of minutes, you were you know, in the groove, and so people would come up and plug in and play, and one night, uh, Bobby Boussoulay came, we called him, uh, I think he called himself Cupid, uh, hmm. and he came in, and he plugged in, and we were playing, and he seemed to fit in, and he got a good, nice groove going, and um, so I didn't think any more of it, but then the next night, he showed up and asked if he could play, and we said, sure, so this became a habit, he would just come down every night, and plug in and play. And pretty soon, he started playing other songs, too. And so um, he became part of the group. Now, he wasn't paid, and he was an official member of the group, but he was part of the group. and came in, and, you know, he went back with us to the dressing room, and he hung out with us. But um, he was just not an official paid member of our group. And um, it sounded good, and he played for quite a while, for several months. And then uh, we met Brian, and uh, we invited Brian to come down. We had met him at a place called Ben Franks in Hollywood, and that was where all the musicians would go after the gig, would go hang hang out there. And so we met him there, and uh, he told us that he was uh, the roadie for the birds, and he introduced us to David Crosby. And then lo and behold, the next night, uh, Brian shows up, and he brings David with him, and several of the people that the birds follow. You know, they they called them the Sherwood Forest crowd, I and mean, these were, um, you know, dancers basically. Yeah. And, and they would come and dance, and pretty soon, um, Brian played and loved his playing. He fit in with our group, and all of these people, of course, they came with him, and so we ended up. Um, telling Bobby that um, he was no longer needed, and because Brian fit in so much better, and he would be someone that you know added to our group besides all the people that came with him, he just added a certain something to the group that kind of completed us. And then Arthur and I knew that this was the group. You know, when uh, yeah we played a couple of songs and thought, wow, this this is the group that can actually do something. So.
3: Did, did you ever get anyway, even peripherally, mixed up with any of the Manson stuff? I, I believe I saw an interview with you where you said that Bobby Busley said, hey, we're going up to a guy named Gary Hinman's house. Do you want to come along?
4: Oh, no, 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 no. Bobby uh, came to my house, I and We had been on tour. And back then, everything was so open and free that you didn't lock your door. So but,
1: I came home
4: from the tour. We had been in San Francisco. And Bobby uh, was in my house. He was just sitting on the floor playing one of my guitars. And it was perfectly fine. I hadn't seen him for a while but so I'm happy to see him and, and um I didn't know but there were you know, I could see the my bedroom doors closed and I said, Is there someone in there? And he said, Yeah, Sadie came with us and um <laughs> just she was tired and wanted to crash so um I sure that's fine and um a while later, this thing came out, this really skinny, cadaverous girl that really was in need of a bath had been sleeping in my bed and I was, you know, upset by that. And we chatted for a while and Bobby said, well, I better go on it. Charlie will get mad. And I said, Charlie? Who's Charlie? He said, well, the guy we lived with up in, you know, Spawn Ranch, I think he said. I'm not sure if it was Spawn Ranch or the other one. But anyway, um, I said, man, he's going to get mad? You mean dude is like your father? you Because know, that was just weird to me. He's upset that somebody else you know, um, doesn't want him to be where he is. And it turns out that, of course, uh, Manson is a, a very racist guy. And he was afraid that Sadie, who turned out to be Susan Atkins, one of those murderers, to tell him that. So... That was as close as I came to any of that, is having both of them in my house at wow. the same time.
3: You said you were friends with Dennis Wilson?
4: Yes, yeah, 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 I'm just, you know, I knew Dennis through the scene. So, yeah, I would go to his house quite a bit. And
3: Were you there I, when Charlie moved in and sort of, like, took over the place? Did you? Get yeah, to see I any went there, and,
4: and I saw all of that. And that was the first time I actually met Charlie, and I see this little thawed-off runt of a guy who... I listened to one of his songs that so they insisted. I listen to his stuff. And I just thought it was just pablum, pedestrian word salad. It made no sense. It was just nonsense. And um, so I'm trying to be cool. You don't want to hurt someone's feelings. But, you know, I, I didn't give him any indication that I thought what he played was good or even acceptable. So I said, eh, yeah, cool. You know, just kind of wanting... You know, not to to be involved with him because you, you could just see he was just not the kind of person you wanted to be around.
3: Did creepiness just kind of come right off the guy? I mean, did, did yeah, he just? Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and
4: he. Everybody he was afraid of him, and, and I'm wondering why are they afraid? Afraid of this little tiny little guy who needs a bath. So all <laughs> of them needed bath. It was so weird. It was like they never took baths.
3: The '60s had a lot of great concepts I could get behind, but I can't process this whole thing about not bathing. <laughs> Arthur wrote a great lyric for a "House Is Not a Motel." The waters turned to blood, and if you don't think so, go turn on your tub. I know that was probably written for the Vietnam War, but it could have been written about the summer of '69 in LA. Yes, it could have
4: been. Yeah, but that 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 line that there's an interesting story about that. We were playing in San Francisco. And there was a, an A.W.O.L. soldier from Vietnam. We were uh, sitting at a table, and he just walked up and sat down, and without being invited, and um, he started talking, and he's telling us about Vietnam. And you know, we're thinking this guy's a little weird, so we want to leave. And we're gonna say, man, we gotta go. And he puts a gun on the table. I think it was a 45 or something. It was a big, huge gun and so then we realized this is serious so we sat back down and he said i, I want to finish my story i'm not gonna hurt anybody and so he starts to telling us that when blood mixes with mud in these warm areas it turns gray and that there would be times when one of the service people the soldiers would be wounded and he would be in the field all night long crying out for his mother or crying out for God. So you, you hear in one of the songs i saying, one part of the song is saying, uh, and you can call my name, and he's talking about the, the story that this guy is telling us. And after he finishes telling us all about the horrors of war and all of that, and that he's actually AWOL, he just gets up and takes his gun and slips. And Arthur turns that into a song.
3: I always wonder about the 60s. Like, is the gun on the table really necessary? Uh,
4: Well, no, (laughs) I I think he wanted us to stay and hear him out. Yeah,
3: well, yeah, yeah. And, And
4: so, of course, when he put it on the table, we heard him out.
3: Johnny Eccles and his incredible guitar work at the end of A House Is Not a Motel. Why don't we take a listen to it?
0: More confusion, blood transfusions The news today will be the movie for tomorrow And the water's turn to blood And if you don't think so, go turn on your tub And if it's mixed with mud, you see it turn to grey Then you can call my name I hear you calling my name
3: Everybody that's ever been in a band remembers the first day they got together with, with the guys to play. And they remember the last day when they realized that it was ending. And for for your band, I thought that it ended ridiculously prematurely. Do you remember what the feeling was in your gut? I mean, you're you're young at this point. I mean, you're like, what, 21 years old? Yeah. And you're being told this incredible thing that, you know, we've been on billboard and we've been on the on American bandstand and we've done all this stuff and it's over with, I mean, what, how did that hit you and what were you thinking?
4: Well, see, it, it, it wasn't so sudden for me because the uh, forever changes fiasco when, you know, we were expecting one thing and we got another and that still was there. You know, there was an undercurrent and, um, so I like, as I had mentioned before, I like blues and jazz, and you know, I Henry Vestine of Gant Heat was a really dear friend, and we had talked about putting together a blues band, a righteous blues band. So I'm looking, you know, more and more toward doing that. Um, and then Brian calls me, and uh, unknown to me, I hadn't known this at all, that during all of this turmoil of doing forever changes when Brian wasn't playing right and all of that, that he had been talking to a lecturer without any of us knowing it with Jack Holtzman. And they had worked out a deal where he would do a solo album. Of course he would stay with love, but they were going to do a solo for him. And that was why he decided to play Arthur's songs properly. And, you know,
1: um,
4: so when he calls me up and tells me that, you know, I'm, at first I'm just really, really angry. And then you know, I said, let's go talk to Arthur and tell him the good news. And Arthur did what I knew he was going to do, but you know, I just didn't have the heart to do it myself. So when we see Arthur, our, our Brian tells him, you know, yeah, I worked out a deal with an uh, electro. I'm going to do a solo album. And Arthur said, ah, Brian, that's fantastic. And, you know, and gave him a hug. Man, that's cool. You're fired. <laughs> And sorry was to laugh that, but
3: I was, I was waiting for that you know that's yeah, great that
4: was that. and uh, we tried a couple of times to put it back together but you know once once it's broken the magic is gone it's just gone and we played a couple of gigs at santa monica civic and uh, gosh i think the uh ciros, uh no it wasn't ciros was called this boss by then anyway it um uh, and brian wasn't there and uh we played, and it just didn't sound the same without his input. It didn't feel the same on stage, and um, we just walked away. And Arthur continued playing, but it never was the same. They, he re- released a few records, but they I don't think they even earned back the studio cost.
3: I think you said at one point that Brian was essentially irreplaceable, just not only for the spirit, but... Like the texture that he brought to the band, the way it was like a Brian Jones thing. You got this dimension from him that was yes. unique.
4: He was, you know, it was much more integral to the group than we, than I even realized. It was just standing on stage when he wasn't there. It wasn't the same group anymore. It was somebody else. So it was easy for me just to, to walk away because it just wasn't there. I wanted to ask you about
3: Henry Visteen because I'm a huge canned Heat fan. Did you know Alan Wilson at all?
4: No, I didn't know. Henry and the um, um, mole, I knew. Yeah, Larry. And, um,
0: yeah,
4: Larry and uh, the other guys, you know, I would know peripherally, hey, how are you doing? What's happening? And we'd sit and join a joint or get high or whatever. But we were not friends the way Henry was and, and Larry.
3: I came across a story, and I don't know if you want to, commented on it. A pretty wild story. I was doing some research. It was written in the Dallas Observer in 1999. Uh, Are you familiar with that story?
4: No, I don't know which one.
3: It talks about the post-love situation and what happened when the band broke up and everything. And one of the things I found just outrageous was that that Arthur was uh, jailed in a California state prison for allegedly firing a gun in the air that apparently another guy came later on said no Arthur didn't do it I did it and yet they just stuck it to him and then Brian and Ken died and it actually said about Johnny it said Johnny's whereabouts remain a mystery but people seem to imagine him walking off into the desert and never coming back one thing is certain he sure doesn't want to talk about his old band and the associations with love was that a reporter that ever talked to you personally? No, or?
4: they never asked me anything. If they asked me, I would have told them all about it. And the truth about the Arthur situation is Arthur at one point became enamored with guns. It, it just for some reason, I have no idea why, but almost like Phil Spector did you He had a gun on him all. Anyway, Arthur's like that. He had a gun in a holster. Anyway, he had a party at his house. He was living in an apartment, actually. And um they're making noise and dancing and stuff, and one of the neighbors uh was upset and said they're making too much noise now Arthur has the gun, and he goes to the door the first time with the gun, he tells the guy to go you know, go to hell, so to speak I, I won't use his language and then they go back, and you know the party goes on, and the guy comes back again, and he's Angry this time, and then Arthur has the gun out of the holster and pointed at him and fired. He's just holding the gun now, and the guy calls the police. And um, a couple of days later, um, they decide that you know they came there. And the police um, told them you know uh, they had to break it up, so that the party breaks up. And a couple of days later, the police come there and arrest him because Arthur had been arrested before and. Couple of other things,
3: and um, so they already they, had a, they had a couple of strikes on him already. I yeah,
4: so they charged him, and so that was a twelve year because it was a three strikes thing, and so they gave him twelve years in prison. And I think he did six or seven of them before um, the appellate courts reversed it and said he had ineffective assistance counsel because the other two charges actually were misdemeanor charges, and they never should have been part of the three strikes so um he served as i said six or seven years i'm not certain uh and he was released by the appellate court and that yeah. was that
3: bruce botnick was was also quoted in this article saying that arthur came up to him and he didn't even recognize him outside the whiskey a go-go in the 80s and arthur said hey man you got any money and he said i didn't even recognize him he didn't recognize me and it made me feel terrible So I assume Arthur had a really rough period.
4: Yeah. The sad part of this is Arthur was getting all of these accolades and he has been called a genius and all of these things that that people are throwing at him, all these superlatives. And Arthur knows that he's not a musician, that he never played, I think, on, on all of our records. He played guitar on one, and that was on, I think, My Flash on You, which had like two, three chords. He couldn't play, you know, guitar very well at all.
1: You know, Arthur had
4: a musician's soul, but he didn't want to take the time required to become a musician. And so, but he's hearing all of this, and he goes into the studio, and now he's telling other musicians what to play. Like, when we recorded, he didn't tell us what to play. He just said, oh, I like or I don't like that. And, you know, we'd work it out until we came to an understanding and the song would kind of write itself. You know, we play and, you know, I've mentioned that to you before, where now Arthur is basically he's running the whole show. He's telling these guys what they're playing and they play what he tells them to play. Well, as I said, not being a musician it's hard to tell another musician what to play and have it turn out right unless you are a musician yourself, and they can't write it down, so all you can yeah. it, tell it. Ready? We're going to roll. Take 24,
1: just for you. Okay, let's take it from the top again.
0: It.
1: Ready? Roll it, let take 26. A st- Take twenty-seven. Oh, you're playing too hard on the strings. Take thirty-one. You guys can relax a little bit man. You can... Take 35. Holy, What happened to the sound of your guitar? You got it up as loud as you had
0: it?
3: Are you ready? Take 36.
4: speed up man Brian speeds
1: up you stay in one range of the guitar throughout the whole thing man because you know you're the one that says you can blow in the studio man nobody to bug you you gotta blow man are you ready to take it from the top
4: so the gigs start being fewer and fewer and fewer and it just goes downhill after that he's trying to live up to an image that he does not have. The finest wordsmith poet that I've ever known or heard, you know, I put him in the category with Bill, but Arthur yeah. was not a musician.
3: And I suppose you had conversations with him from time to time where you might say, hey man, why are you doing this yourself? Can't we focus? You know, why are we spinning our wheels? Did you ever, were oh, you able
4: to course. reach him? Of course, and we came together and talked and tried putting it back together. But either Brian was still, this is before, you know, of course, before he died, or Kenny. Every, you know, no one actually came together at the same time until they released a box set. And the box set was Love Story.
3: Was that Rhino? Rhino did that? Yeah. yeah.
4: And we finally decided that we were going to all get together and play. And we worked out our differences and all the hard feelings and all of that. And we, you know, were going to the rehearsal studio uh, to play. And this is when Arthur, we found out Arthur has his case because we didn't know that Arthur was going to court or there was a the chance that he would go to prison.
3: So what year and was this bad. about? Are we talking about early early 90s?
4: Yeah, this would have been yeah. around 95, 96.
3: 95, 96, okay. Yeah, and
4: uh, they released the box set and we were going to go on a world tour to support it and we would have gotten a really nice nice paycheck so everybody was of course on board for that but that's when you know we're waiting at the studio for arthur and he doesn't show and so now we're pissed off at him thinking man it's the same old arthur you know he doesn't show up and you know but we find out later that um he had been uh, found guilty and they took him immediately right into custody right there and that
3: was that Wow. The timing of that sucks so bad because you guys were up for uh, nomination uh, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I would imagine around 91 yeah. or 92.
4: Yeah, everything was falling into place. We were yeah. ready to go. And it then was... that happened and that just killed everything. And then we talked about, you know, getting together, Brian and I, and then um, Brian is having a, giving a, an interview with Kevin Delaney. And uh, it was right across from Canders, and he just has a heart attack right there and dies on the spot. He didn't, you know, it wasn't like he was sick. He knew that he had a battery, nothing. He just was sitting talking and then just died.
3: And he was, he was roughly around 50 at the time. I mean, and this is a thing that the sixties seems dogged by so many premature deaths of so many musicians Brian Brian turned to to Christian music and he yeah. he was doing his own thing. Did he have the kind of demons that would drive you to not keep yourself healthy or or drug issues? I, I still can't figure out what happened to him.
4: Well, of course, all of us had drug issues, you know, myself included. So, um, you know, I had gotten to the point where I put it behind me and and uh, moved on. But both of them still were part of that scene. But I think once Brian became involved in in, uh, Christian rock and all of that, that was, you know, the door for him to walk through and and get himself away from that. So he was able to exercise those those demons and and, uh, become a different person. You know, I don't, I never knew whether it was the right thing for him to do because of the type of people that he was involved with were you know a little far out as far as i'm concerned
0: yeah
3: i mean i'm wondering Uh, if it was if it was a a reaction or a kind of a coping mechanism because some people do get into religion um to try to find some kind of purpose but they end up getting really sidetracked so
4: yeah i think that probably was it to a degree because um It, it, no, you don't want to to kind of denigrate someone else's faith. That that yeah, no. You know, between him and whoever it is that you know he looks to us as his God, but it it just seemed to me that it was more than a simple faith thing. I think it was you know trying to find a purpose a reason you know so he could understand who he was because all of us, and that happens not just to us, but so many musicians. You know, you finally get your dream. Everything that you wanted is finally here. You've got the money and the accolades and all of the people, you know, the adorable, adoring crowds, rather. And you do everything you can to destroy that or become involved with drugs. It's like you do everything you can to destroy what you spent your life to build. And so many of us do that, and it's hard to understand why. I think a person could... um, if they could figure that out, they could become a trillionaire. You know, a psychologist, a psychiatrist could write a book figuring out because it's not, you know, it's just damn near everybody that I know. There's so few musicians that don't succumb to demons, you know, one way or the other.
3: Sometimes when you achieve fame overnight or really fast, there's a part of you that feels like you don't deserve it. And there's a part of you that feels maybe someone's going to find out you're really not as great as everybody thinks you are. And there's a sense of living up to what everyone, if if you're like Jim Morrison, they're expecting a freak show. So it's like, how can we, you know, how can we push his buttons So he flips out on stage. And I think for even the most well-adjusted person, it's really tough to be, to be vaulted up to this pinnacle of fame and everything. And then in your guy's case with love, just having it end overnight. You say to yourself, I'm 21 years old, now what do I do? You moved to New York and you were doing um, some session work. I just wanted to ask you real quick about the Miles Davis thing and the whole percussion thing because I thought that was a really interesting project.
4: Yeah, he, you know, that was fascinating because, you know, he would sometimes, you know, go to the park, Washington Square whatever and there's a drum circle and people are, you know, whatever percussion thing they can find or trash can lid or whatever. And they all started beating and there's dancing and they're doing these rhythmic And they become more and more complex as these people are playing together. And they thought that this would be fascinating if I could do that and play. But the thing was, they could not leave or did not understand that you have to leave a space for the soloist. And Miles was the soloist. So you, you can't just play all over him. You have to leave room for him to play and they didn't understand that and the fact was if they were taught how to play and what to do then it's no longer spontaneous and and it defeats the purpose so there were a couple of recordings that they did and they really you know I don't think they should be released in other words you know that would be great thinking ah there's money but as far as, as pushing, the, you know, the boundaries or doing something that's worthwhile, it, it it really is. It's just, you know, basically people beating on drums and, and trash can lids and, and uh, a trumpet trying to find its place in it. And it, it never comes together. It never melds into something that you would
1: call music. It sounds a little bit like... Welcome back. And uh, that was an extended interview. Uh, With uh, guitarist uh, Johnny Eccles. And uh, we're going to be closing out our program uh, for today. Uh, You've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, June 26, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again, uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of Miles Davis uh, from the album, the soundtrack to the documentary, a tribute to Jack Johnson. This is biomi Azikaway signing off, and have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.